Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this moment that we have to gather together and sing words that we believe are true about you. God, some of us came into this room today and we, we could readily offer words of thanks and gratitude and confidence towards you. We've seen you move in evident and life-giving ways in these past few weeks and months. We, we, we don't hesitate to, to sing songs of praise. But some of us arrived here this morning, we struggle to find the words the confidence or the desire to sing those kind of songs. Lord, today I pray in this very moment that you would meet us at our point of need. That you would speak words of life to all of us who need to hear them today. God, I pray that if there's anything visible or invisible that would prevent us from hearing your voice, hearing your heart, seeing you as you are, we pray that you would uh, remove that now in the name of Jesus. God, bring the nature of who you are into focus so that everything that we are thinking or believing that isn't right would just, would just melt away. right vision of you would change how we think about Jesus, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about the moment that we're in. Speak to us, Lord, so that we might be changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I want to ask you a very direct question. Now, you don't have to answer it out loud. You just kind of answer it to yourself. Don't raise your hand. Don't speak anything. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever told a story that you knew was not entirely true? Some of you are laughing, and the answer is yes. <laughs> Mine came to me very clearly when I was in the third grade. I was at Field Park Elementary School in suburban Chicago, and I'll never forget this moment. It was before our gym class, and we were all putting on our, our red shorts and our white shirt with the school logo on, all getting ready to go out for gym. And Sean Beatty made an announcement to us. Now, Sean was the tallest boy in our third grade class. He was the most athletic. He had awesome Star Wars toys. You wanted to be around Sean. Yes, you wanted to be Sean. He was clearly the coolest kid in our group. So the announcement that he was going to make had everybody on the edge of our little wooden benches. He goes, hey guys, I got bad news. My family is moving to Cincinnati. And uh, like immediately just this wave of grief washed over all of us third grade boys. Uh, we'd never had anybody like geographically move out of our circle before. And our entire third grade social structure as we knew it was imploding before our very eyes. And in that moment, I, I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder if this group would be sad if I moved. And I decided to test that theory immediately. <laughs> and so I jumped in and said, hey guys, guess what? My family's moving too. Well, unfortunately, everybody had already wasted all their emotional energy on Sean, and there were no tears for me. Um, so I didn't know. I didn't know that this story was going to circle back to my mother, but it did. 
A girl in my class told her mom, who called my mom on an actual telephone, she called my mother and she said, I heard that you're moving out of state. When will your house go on the market? We're interested. <laughs> I had a very interesting conversation with my mother later that afternoon. What is fake news? Fake news is deliberately spreading misinformation with a particular agenda in mind. And I was guilty of it that day. Now, with the advent of the internet and social media, part of the challenge of our current world is that anybody can say anything about anyone at any time without necessarily any repercussions at all. And the challenge for us, the readers, the listeners, the viewers, is to run all of that spin, all of that fluff, all of that noise through a filter and ask this question, what do I know to be true? And when Jesus first arrived in Jerusalem, on the moment that we now celebrate today as Palm Sunday, that, that was a day that was filled with controversy. The crowds were singing songs and waving branches, celebrating Jesus as an arriving king. But Jesus' critics blast this as fake news. They say the crowd is delusional, that they're crowning the wrong king. So the question that we're left with is, what's at the center of this debate? How do we get to what's true? And what king are you and I crowning on the throne of our lives these days? Let's look at the text. John chapter 12 says it this way. Meanwhile, a large crowd found out that Jesus was there on the outskirts of Jerusalem and came because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So if you're not familiar with the story, in the chapter prior to this one, a close family friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus had become ill and died, and a few days later, Jesus came and miraculously rose him from the dead. So Jesus' popularity is on the uptick, and everybody wants to see this guy named Lazarus, who was dead and now is not. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They can't just kill Jesus, they have to destroy the evidence that's made him so popular. For on account of him, many of the Jews are going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival, which is Passover, one of three major festivals that all Jews are supposed to celebrate every year, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, at first glance, it's hard to see why Jesus' opponents are so rattled. Technically, Jesus has not said or done anything incredibly controversial. All he's doing is quietly riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives and then back up a hill into the gates of Jerusalem. But it's not the event that is so unnerving to Jesus' enemies. It's the symbolism behind it. It's what all this means. And in order to fully grasp the significance of this moment, we have to read parts of the Bible that the Pharisees already understood. So we got to go back to Psalm 18. 
The verses say this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a verse that Jesus will actually quote later in the week to talk about how he is God's chosen gift to the people, but they're going to reject him anyway. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has made his light shine on us with boughs or branches in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That line, festal procession, there's this joyous parade up to the temple, which is in the center of Jerusalem. And in the temple, there's an altar. And on the altar, there are horns coming out of each of the four corners, symbolizing God's strength. So this is a psalm celebrating the ascent to the place where people are going to have a dramatic encounter with the living God. When the people start singing Hosanna, or Lord save us, they are directly referencing this psalm. When they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are citing this precise passage. They say, we are blessing you as you lead us in this event at the altar. But they don't just quote two lines from Psalm 18. They add one more, and this is where things get tricky. They say, blessed is the king of Israel. Now, Israel's most famous king, King David, had a moment where he also led a joyous procession into Jerusalem. So singing this psalm at this moment in this place is recognizing Jesus as a king in the line of David. They're not just celebrating a potential political leader. They're crowning a messianic king. And the fact that he's riding a donkey, well, that only further complicates things for Jesus' rival. Zechariah the prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this picture of a savior is fascinating. Zechariah says Israel's king will be both victorious and lowly. It's kind of hard for us to reconcile those together. Either you're lowly or you're victorious. It's hard for you to be both. See, when we look for kings, when we look for leaders, we look for people who are immense in stature, either physical stature or just dominant charismatic presence. In his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell talked about how we make unconscious snap judgments about other people. He said 100 years ago, there was a presidential election that was happening, and Warren G. Harding, I told some of you before, he's a distant relative of mine and largely rumored to be one of the worst presidents the United States has ever had. I don't put that on my resume. He was in a presidential election. Everybody knew he was the lesser of the two candidates, but, but because he was rumored to be a couple inches taller, people wanted him. They liked the appearance that he conveyed, not necessarily his um, political acumen or the policies that he was developing, and he won, even though maybe he should not have. What does it say? It says that we don't want kings who are lowly. We want kings who are imposing. We want them arriving in style. We want our leaders to roll into town in a presidential limo or standing on top of a tank. 
We love images of presidents in flight suits on aircraft carriers, not men in simple white robes riding on small donkeys. Zechariah's king is humble, and he's focused on peace. He's not building a war machine. He's actively dismantling it. He breaks bows and weapons of war. He proclaims peace. The prophet goes on to say that the donkey rider isn't just a king. He's a savior. Zechariah 9.16 says, The Lord their God will save his people. On that day, as a shepherd saves his flocks, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Now, once we know what the crowd is actually saying, it's helpful for us to read the story again. This time we'll read Luke's account. This is Luke chapter 19. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You've got, you got to shut these guys down. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring, your peace, bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Picture that for a moment. There's all this celebration. There's all this fanfare. There's all this noise. And the crowd is on its feet giving Jesus a standing ovation. And what's Jesus doing? He's weeping. Like not, not like little, little mist gathering in the corner of his eye. Full on weeping. If you visit Jerusalem this day, you can actually go on to the Mount of Olives on the outskirts of the city. And as you descend, there's a little chapel there called Dominus Flavit, which in Latin literally means Jesus wept. And a famous Italian architect has shaped this little shrine as a teardrop. And as you look out the window that faces the city in the stained glass, there's actually a mother hen, a chicken in the stained glass. That represents another account of the story that Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings. As a hen gathers her chicks underneath them to defend them, to love them, to protect them. He goes, but you would not have it. The Palm Sunday crowd welcomes Jesus as king. But Jesus' rivals say, he's not, that's fake news. And then they build their argument, and they say, here's why. Real kings don't ride donkeys. They ride stallions. Real kings don't come in peace. They come in force. They come with all of the audacity and all of the swagger and all the boasting that they need to let all of their enemies know that they're on notice. And then finally, real kings don't cry over cities. If people have offended a king, if people are resisting a king, if people reject a king, you know, what, you know what brutal kings in that age did? They would burn those cities to the ground. If you slighted a king, if you hurt his feelings, you were done. It was, that, it was that simple. And so all of Jesus' critics can say, here are all of the reasons why we know that he's not a real king. Don't ride donkeys, don't come in peace, don't cry over cities. That's not what kings do. But when we read this with the understanding of the Psalms and the prophet Zechariah, we go, no, that, that's fake news. 
And the reason that Jesus' arrival is causing problems is because Jesus shatters Israel's expectations of a Messiah. They wanted somebody who was spectacular, somebody who was strong, who was their version of masculine. But Jesus comes humbly. He comes refusing to lead a military rebellion, and he comes challenging their spiritual maturity. I don't know about you, but if you're a pastor who is new in town, and the very first Sunday you get up in front of people and say, hey, you guys have issues. You don't understand God well. You're stiff-necked. You're hard-hearted. You're rebellious. And if you want to walk with God, you're going to have to change. You're not going to last long in that town. But that's Jesus opening salvo to the city of Jerusalem on this moment. And in this episode, we have to understand that either the king is fake or the expectations are wrong. Either the king is fake or the expectations are wrong. If you go back another 1,000 years in Israel's history, you'll see something interesting. At that time, the prophet Samuel is leading the nation. There's a whole era between Moses and Israel's first king where the people who were leading the country were judges and prophets. They would hear from God. They would tell the people what God needed them to know. And then they would let the people decide whether they wanted to walk with God or not. And unfortunately, over the, over the arc of Israel's history, they have a pretty bad track record of cooperating with and responding to the prophets. But Samuel was one of the most popular prophets. And usually people would think, well, when a prophet passes, he's going to hand the baton down to his next of kin. He's going to kind of keep it in the family. But unfortunately, everybody in the country knew that Samuel's sons were, were deadbeats with questionable ethics. So everybody knew that that couldn't happen. And the nation's having an identity crisis. They're trying to figure out when Samuel's gone, what will we do? Who will we be? Who will lead us? So their reflex is to ask Samuel for a king. This is what I read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. It's not you they're rejecting, God says to Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. And when you hit pause and zoom out and look at this whole story, you realize that it was never God's intent. It was never his plan A for Israel to have any human king at all. God says, I want to be your enough. I want to be your savior. I want to be your Messiah. I want to be your only one. But eventually the nation got to a point where they said, nope. We want somebody we can see. All of our neighbors have kings. That gives them national pride. That gives them political legitimacy. We want, we want what everybody else gets. And God said, fine. I'll give you a king, but know this. It's going to break your heart. You ever had a moment in your life where you got what you wanted, and then two months, two years, or two decades later, you realize that it's not what you wanted at all? That's exactly what's happening with Israel. And so there's this very tenuous dance that Israel has done with their kings. The Palm Sunday question for us, when Jesus arrives in ways that we don't expect, anticipate, or particularly want, the question that we have to ask is, is something wrong with Jesus or is something wrong with our view of Jesus? Is something wrong with Jesus or is something wrong with the way we read him? 
The scriptures offer two pictures of a Messiah. The first one's my favorite. It's the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have a Messiah who comes as a triumphant king. In this one, Jesus comes like literally radiating light. He's got, he's got this majestic appearance, and he's coming in on a white horse, and he's got this massive sword, and he's got this crazy tattoo on his thigh, and he's just, he just comes in swinging, and he's defeating all of his enemies as he goes, and that, that is the picture of Jesus. That's a poster of Jesus I want in my high school locker, that one right there. Jesus, triumphant king. That's the one we want. But there's also another image of Messiah that we find in the scriptures. This one is found in Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah tells the people that when your Messiah comes, he's going to look like a suffering servant. He's going to be despised and rejected. He's going to be so disfigured that you won't even be able to recognize his face. And it's by his wounds that you are going to be forgiven and healed and redeemed. And I don't know about you, but when I look at pictures of Messiah, I don't, I don't want a Messiah who's bleeding with black eyes. I want a Messiah who's on top of the world. And that's what Jerusalem wanted too. That crowd expected a triumphant king, but Jesus wouldn't bend to their will. Just days later, when he fails to meet their expectations, the fickle city clamors for his crucifixion. Why? Because crowds sour on kings quickly. And when Jesus is crucified, he embodies the role of suffering servant. And I think many of us struggle when we read this story, myself included, because we want the king and not the servant. We want the stallion and not the donkey. We want the crown, but not the cross. And we know, we know that if Jesus is asking us to follow him, then we might have to choose the servant, the donkey, and the cross as well. And who wants that? Here's what Jesus says. He goes, never fear. You are going to get your triumphant king. But the manner and the timing in which you receive him is up to me and not to you. Will you trust me in the meantime? And my guess is that if we're not in one now, all of us have had moments where we prayed. We said, Lord, just ride into my town on a horse with a sword and set all of this straight. And Jesus shows up on a donkey, humble of heart, proclaiming peace and not war. And we're disappointed. I want to ask you this question. Who are you crowning king these days? If we're completely honest, some of us would say, in my mind, I believe that Jesus is all the things that he says he is. And in my heart, 
I have received him as Lord. I've prayed the prayer. I've walked the walk. I read my Bible. I'm just kind of doing the thing. But in the practice of my actual life, you might not be able to know that I call him king. Because if you were to give me a crown, there are a couple other places I would put that than other, other than the head of the Savior. And for some of us, our families get our crown. Or work gets the crown. Or how we handle our resources gets the crown. For some of us, our addictions get the crown. And for others of us, past hurts that have us trapped in a spiral of rage, those get the crown. So if you were to be completely honest with yourself and God, who, who's getting the crown these days? And is that thing or that person or that set of circumstances, did they deserve to wear the crown? Or have you crowned the wrong king? Jesus' enemies were so convinced on how God should work in their environment to meet their will, their, their agenda, their desires, their convenience, that they missed the king that was right in front of them. And my, my greatest concern for my own life, my greatest fear for us is that we will, we will miss the real king and we'll settle for a fake one because we think that's what we need when in fact God says, if you trust me, if you trust me, I will lead you, I will deliver you, and I will comfort you in my way and in my time. Team's gonna come up and lead us in a final song of celebration. And as I do, I want, you to, I want you to come back to one word in this passage. And the word is this, Hosanna. 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 The word means God save us or Lord rescue us. Now there's two ways that you can, you can say Hosanna. Here, they're not in trouble. The people are having a great day. They're, they're over the moon because Jesus is walking. So when they sing Hosanna, it's a declaration of praise. But sometimes we sing Hosanna with an exclamation point, and other times we can barely eke out Hosanna with a whimper because we're at the bottom of a pit. We're in the middle of a dark night. feels like the world is stacked against us, and we, it takes everything that we can muster to say, Lord, will you rescue me? And there's two ways that you can pray Hosanna. You can pray an anticipatory Hosanna, you can pray an expectant Hosanna, which is saying, I don't know how or when, but I really do believe that God's going to rescue me. I can't see it yet, but all of my hope is in God. So you can, you can be praying Hosanna as you look through your windshield, or you can be praying Hosanna. You can be yelling Hosanna. You can be singing Hosanna at the top of your lungs as you look in your rearview mirror and you say, I can point to situation. I can point to the summer of 1978 where God came through for me, and I praise him. I can point to the winter of 2009 and God came through for me and I can praise him. I can point to last week or the last 24 hours and God did something amazing. I can praise him. Your Hosanna might be one that looks back and says, I'm thanking God because he did something good. Your Hosanna could be one that's looking forward saying, I'm praising God in advance. He hasn't done it yet, but I know that he can and I know that he will. And his cross and the empty tomb declares that he has the capacity to meet me right where he, I am. And I want to ask you this question. If you are expecting a stallion, but you get a donkey, will you sing Hosanna anyway? Will you sing Hosanna anyway?
Because Jesus says, if I, if I get to be king, you relinquish your rights to call the shots. If you're going to let him king, he's got to be a sovereign one that goes unchallenged in every season and day of your life. So here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to end this day for, with an anthem. And as I pray, I just want you to, I want you to think this thought. I want you to pray, pray this reflective prayer. Say, Lord, is there anything or anyone that's getting the crown that belongs to you and only you? So let's just pray and ask that God would lead us. God, it's so easy to look back in history because we have the benefit of hindsight to look back and blame people who couldn't see what was happening clearly. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are a lot of us who we're not seeing life clearly right now. And it could be that we're actively resisting you or it could just be that we're overwhelmed. There are circumstances beyond our control that terrify us. And God, some of us in a panic, we haven't had the patience to wait for your deliverance and we keep just kind of crazily grasping at anybody or anything that we can reach and saying, will you save me? Will you save me? Will you rescue me? And it's all futile, Lord, because none of those people can. So Lord, if any of us, just even this last week, have been giving our worship, our attention, or our energy to anyone or anything that isn't you, will you, will you call that to light? now, Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on us for having our attentions misaligned, for having our focus get misdirected, for settling for a fake version of reality rather than leaning fully into yours. And God, now by your grace, we take, we take that crown back again from whatever unworthy head we have placed it on. And we give it to you. And the cry of our heart is, Hosanna. God, you have saved me and I will trust you. Or I believe that you can rescue me and I will trust you. Lord, we don't, we don't want to get lulled to sleep into spiritual apathy. We want to be the kind of people who roll out of bed every single day and say, God, all I have is yours. So blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of my life, of my household, of my neighborhood, of my school, of my business. Blessed are you, you first, you only. open our eyes to the wonder of who you are and move us to the place where that crowd was on that day that if we did not lift up our voices, the very pews that we sit on would, would, would begin to shout it out. God, let us be so overwhelmed with a sense of your goodness, so overwhelmed with an understanding of your worthiness that we can't do anything other than declare your goodness with our voices, with our love, and our obedience. We pray these things in Christ's name. Let's respond to God together.